Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, January 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 threatens to put deep south hospitals in a death spiral. Then, why one state rep wants to take a chunk out of the superintendent of education salary. And we talk with the Mississippi State University astronomer working to put a telescope on the surface of the moon. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to rise in Mississippi, though they are rising at a slower rate than last week, suggesting that the peak of this wave of Omicron-related cases is starting to taper off. But hospital systems are still overwhelmed. The Gulf State's newsrooms, Shalina Chatlani, reports on how southern hospitals are having to offer better pay as demand for traveling nurses and other staff skyrockets and not all are able to do so. Northeastern states have been battling the Omicron surge for weeks. Now health systems in the South are in crisis mode. We're dealing with a really shifty enemy, and it's changing the rules of the game. Alan Jones with the University of Mississippi Medical Center says the big challenge now is staffing. We would not have expected that we'd have closed beds and a nursing shortage or that it would put out, you know, 175 or 200 of our employees on any given day. Nurses are burnt out and quitting. In 2021 alone, over 2,000 nurses left Mississippi. UMMC has five times more nursing positions open than usual. Others have tested positive for COVID-19 and can't work. Demand for travel nurses to fill the gaps is high. Maybe in some places we get one step ahead, maybe in some places get one step behind. While infections with Omicron tend to be less severe than Delta, the new variant is more transmissible. Unvaccinated COVID patients are driving up hospitalizations, and the South has among the lowest vaccination rates. April Hansen, an executive with travel nurse agency Aya Healthcare, says staffing was a crisis nationally before the pandemic. But now the workforce gap is unsustainable. They had a little bit of breathing room that they just don't have today. Poor vacancy numbers have nearly doubled. With the first wave, she says demand was generally quiet outside major cities. It didn't take long until that changed. Now, contracts are available everywhere, 
and the competition is tough. Location drives interest. And so places that are highly desirable, like Hawaii, as an example, they don't have to try as hard to lure staff. Depending on the specialty, travel nurse contracts can pay thousands of dollars a week. Big hospitals might be able to pay, but healthcare officials say that can be too high for smaller operations, which end up just closing beds. Sitting outside close to a hospital where he works, Jackson nurse Jim Wesley Williams says last year he left for work in Texas, Maine, and Wisconsin. But I think now in the South, because Mississippi isn't the only place, there's a need here for nurses also, and they've upped their pay. Out-of-state gigs were lucrative because hospitals there were desperate, but they were also exhausting. I came back home for school and for family, and I was just blessed enough to find a contract that paid really well here. Some Southern hospital systems have more than doubled their travel nurse pay. Williams got a contract worth about $100 an hour and says a number of his colleagues have returned because they miss home. There is a population out there that has ties to this area. So we are able to pull those people back. Dr. Robert Hart is executive vice president of Auctioner Health, which runs 40 hospitals across Mississippi and Louisiana. At its peak, Auctioner had around 1,400 staff out sick. But Hart says the worker shortage isn't a new problem. We've got multiple plans in place and partnerships with various universities to educate nurses, increase the size of nursing schools. But hospital leaders in the South say that for the foreseeable future, they'll continue to struggle with understaffing. That story was reported by Gulf States newsroom reporter Shalina Chatlani, who joins us now. Shalina, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. In your report, you talk about staffing being the main challenge with this particular variant of coronavirus. Tell us why and how this is different from the past. Well, the Delta variant, which caused a major surge in hospitalizations and cases and in the summer and into the fall last year, was highly contagious and more deadly than past variants. But the vaccine was available at that time, so healthcare staff was getting the vaccine, um, and it was still being rolled out to younger people in the 5 to 17 age range. So Delta was causing a lot of severe cases, but it was particularly in unvaccinated groups. So with Omicron, while infections are less severe, the variant is more transmissible. The majority of cases are still in unvaccinated people, but some vaccinated people could catch mild cases, and that would put them out of work. And so a lot of healthcare staff who were sort of immune had better immunity with the Delta variant because the vaccines were pretty effective with the Delta variant. They could be catching these cases, getting sick, and then unable to help with the high hospitalizations during the Omicron wave. So even though hospitalizations aren't peaking like with Delta, there are now fewer people to staff beds, which is creating a crisis of care. How did we get to this workforce staffing challenge in the first place? I mean, what's going on and are there any solutions? Well, before the pandemic started, there was already a staffing shortage across healthcare. So April Hansen from IA Healthcare, who was in my story, said her data team looked at open RN positions and there were 100,000, around 100,000. Now there's around 200,000 core vacancies that need to be filled. So double, right, since the beginning of the pandemic. Some hospitals, like University of Mississippi Medical Center, say it will take years to fix the staffing issue. 
And some solutions are focusing on the workforce pipeline. You know, how do we graduate and hire more nurses? But then there's also another issue of retention. A lot of nurses during this pandemic have said they're burnt out and say they're underpaid. So another another issue that will have to be considered in the long run is equitable pay for nurses. More education sounds like it, that's going to take a while. We know that hospitals are paying more to get these travel nurses. How else are hospitals impacted? Well, aside from having to pay higher rates for getting these nurses, some hospitals that can't afford those rates are simply closing beds. And that's really troubling, considering that some of those hospitals, especially in rural areas, are likely safety net providers for a lot of people. And, you know, I hope to do some follow-up reporting, looking at some of the hospitals that have had to pay these higher rates and simply weren't able to. You know, what are what is the impact of this stage of the pandemic? Shalina Chatlani is a reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, which is a collaboration between public media stations in Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Coming up, why one state representative wants to take a chunk out of the superintendent of education salary. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi House have voted to require employers to pay women and men the same amount of money for the same work. But an advocate who has been pushing for years for an equal pay mandate says the bill is weak. Cassandra Welchlin is the leader of the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. She says the proposal would not help women of color who are more likely to be higher at low wages. House Bill 770 passed the House 111 to 5 with bipartisan support. It will move to the Senate. A 1963 federal law requires equal pay for equal work, but Mississippi is the only state without its own equal pay law. The Equal Pay Act is one of a number of big headline-grabbing bills that have dominated this year's legislative session. But even the session's less flashy action warrants a closer look. Nick Bain is a House Republican from Corinth. This year, he's introduced a bill taking aim at the salary of Mississippi Superintendent of Education, Carrie Wright, who's currently paid $300,000 per year. Bain's proposal is to rein in that figure by tying it to the governor's salary. It would be 100% plus 50% of his salary. The reason that is, is the superintendent, our superintendent is one of the highest paid in the country. During COVID, during the pandemic, everything that's gone on with our teachers, they've been asked to do a whole lot of stuff that they're not trained for, a whole lot of stuff that goes well beyond their job description. And though we've given them, and, and hopefully we can continue to give them a, a uh, uh, pay raise, you know, for for a superintendent to make what, what she does is really, I think, a slap in the face of some of our educators. Have you shared your opinion with her at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what has been the response? Oh, uh, there hasn't been one. I'll just say that. Okay. Okay. Do you think there's support for that? Publicly, yes. Now, where it's at and what the chairman are going to do, I know that the chairman of education in the Senate has filed a similar bill. There is some support how broad and how uh, 
how much that is, I, I, I can't tell you. You have another bill, HB 622, that would expunge someone's record if charges against them are dismissed or dropped. Why is that a concern? Well, what's happening a lot, and, and I see this in practice, and I don't know that, it, that we're going to use that bill or another one. Uh, Shawnee Yates has a similar bill. But what is happening is a lot of times people will get arrested, and that arrest, but the but the charge never goes to court. There's never a conviction. There's never anything else that happens to it. But that arrest stays on the record just like a, uh, anything else would. So we're trying to trying to help that to. They don't know that they can come back to a lawyer and get that taken off. So we're we're trying to uh, let that happen just kind of by operation of law. That's a work in progress, I will tell you. But we are looking at the expungement statute to, to try to, to do things like that. And another bill, HB 621, would increase penalties for someone who flees from law enforcement. Why, why that of, issue? That, yeah, that comes at the request of law enforcement because it, it's happening more and more. As you know, I'm a criminal defense attorney, and I see it a lot. Uh, you see people who are on probation or some type of prior felon, and they just go out, and, and uh, whether they're scared, whatever the, pay, the the case may be, they go out and they see a, a roadblock or they, they're getting pulled over for something else, and they just take off. They just take off through neighborhoods. They take off through downtowns, uh, through hi- highly populated areas. And all the judges can give them for that is, is five years. Now, it's a serious problem because you got a lot of innocent people that can be hurt with that. So we're just trying, and, and it's happened more and more, so we're just trying to curb that a little bit and, and let people know that, you know, if you take off in these highly populated areas, you could be going to jail for a lot longer. Under the new parole eligibility statute, five years, you know, they would be eligible uh, for a lot less uh, and pro eligibility, so they wouldn't be doing a whole lot. So we're just trying to to, to send a message that they're, this is a serious offense and it's happening more and more. What would you like to see the penalty raised to? It's, it, I think the bill goes, it, right now the maximum is five, and I think the bill, the bill takes it to ten, ten years. Representative Nick Bain of Corinth, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Thank you. Coming up, we talk with the Mississippi State University astronomer working to put a telescope on the surface of the moon. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Scientists in the Gulf South are working to put a telescope on the dark side of the moon. Faculty at both Mississippi and Louisiana State Universities are collaborating on the project, which they hope will ultimately land a small imaging device called an LCAM-1 on the lunar surface. Angel Tanner is an MSU astronomer who's part of the work. She speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. So basically what we're doing is uh, NASA is kind of uh, putting a little bit of money towards uh, having us return to the moon, whether it be landers or eventually humans again. And so this project was looking into the benefits of placing a telescope on the moon. 
which uh, we don't have that many telescopes on the moon right now. So that was pretty much the focus. And uh, we investigated how having a telescope on the moon would help us look for more extrasolar planets, which are planets that orbit other stars. And then also to search for near-Earth asteroids, which, you know, may eventually possibly come a little bit too close for comfort. So this is probably a rather foolish question, but why is it important to have a telescope on the moon? Why can't we accomplish all of those things Ah, that you just listed off with a terrestrial telescope? Excellent question. So being on the moon has a couple advantages, and I should point out that we're on the far side of the moon, so we're on the back side of the moon. And so uh, much like sending telescopes into space, uh, we, we don't have the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, in the way. So if you look at the stars in the night sky, they tend to twinkle. And astronomers don't like that because it messes up our images. And so much like sending something like the James Webb telescope into space or Hubble into space, putting a telescope on the moon lets us not have that atmosphere. In the case of the moon, it's also nice because we put it on the backside of the moon then every two weeks, you don't have this, the Earth in the way. <laughs> Whenever you're orbiting in space, you tend you have to avoid, uh, you don't want to point your telescope at the sun, and you don't want to point your telescope at the Earth. That would be very bad. So if you're on the backside of the moon, you can also avoid the Earth for at least two weeks out of the month. So you can stare at a star for two weeks continuously, which is quite nice. What are sort of the long-term potential Boons or benefits or repercussions of this in terms of, again, you mentioned all this new imaging that, that, that this telescope might be able to deliver that we haven't previously been able to get. What does that actually mean in terms of a long-term understanding of our solar system and the universe and, and, and all that? All that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, long-term, this is just what we call a pilot So this is us kind of testing the waters, so to speak. Um, I I was trying to get, uh, whenever we were talking about how to talk about this, you know, it's it's good to make a a moon reference that this is a small step. But um, another reason we like to put things on the moon is because it's more of a stable platform. It's actually, you know, ground that you're sitting on. So, I mean, long-term plans in the next you know, 10 to 50 years would to be to build bigger and bigger telescopes on the moon. So this is just one small step in building many larger uh, astronomical facilities, which will just let us be able to see further and uh, see things that are a lot fainter and discover more astronomical objects, anything from planets to supernovae to galaxies when the universe was very young. In terms of time frame, looking ahead, when do you expect to launch? Where do you expect to launch? And when might the public start seeing some of these images that hopefully this telescope is going to be able to produce? Yeah, we're just getting started. So this was the concept study. So this is why a lot of these projects take a long time. So for instance, the James Webb Space Telescope, which finally launched and is heading towards its final location. People were thinking about that in the late 80s. So these things take a long time. This is a smaller, this is a little bitty camera, so it'll take take a little less time. But we still need to uh, get the funding 
to be able to actually build the camera and then place it onto a mission. So right now we're aiming for a launch in um, uh, 2024, we hope. And uh, we it shouldn't take, unlike JW, which is going to take a few months to get ready, I assume that if everything goes well, we should be able to get some images at some point later that year in 2024, if we get the funding to actually launch the telescope. I don't know where it's going to launch from. Um, I think we still have to choose. It's going to depend on what lander that we get to put ourselves onto. So that's still up for up for debate. But any anything from uh, so we're going to the moon, so it's going to need a fairly big rocket to to get it to the moon. Anything else that I may have missed that is important to note about this? We do have a lot of students. I did not have a student in Mississippi State participate all that much, but there was definitely a few graduate students and also a couple of undergraduate students at LSU that got that got to participate. And uh, so it's been kind of nice to get the, the new generations of astronomers and maybe engineers involved in this project. And of course, if anybody out there is interested in hearing more about it, uh, students or uh, non-students, they're more than welcome to contact me. That actually brings up one other question that just comes to mind for me. The Deep South in general is perhaps not perceived as a, you know, a mecca of exciting new innovation or tech, but what is all this, all this research and all this, this work towards exploring new frontiers down here in the Deep South sort of mean? You know, is there a personal meaning to you or any sort of, you know, any kind of a reflection you have on that? Yeah, I mean, it has, it has a lot of meaning to me because STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, I mean, that's, it's, it's a field of the future, and it's really important to get lots of students involved in it. So, yeah, it's really important just to grow our both of these departments and both of these wonderful SEC schools and also just get more students involved in STEM programs because they're really, you know, even whenever you're playing around with stuff on the moon, just le- learning how to write the code that you need to write to figure out what we're doing, you can apply that to lots of other things. So you don't necessarily have to become an astronomer. You can go off and work for the finance industry or go work for civil engineering or lots of things. So and there's lots of people think we spend all this money on all this hot pie in the sky space stuff, but it employs and teaches a lot of students how to do a lot of technical things that can be applied to lots of different industries. Yeah, so it is kind of important, especially down here in the South. Jobs are good. Angel Tanner is an MSU astronomer who's a professor at Mississippi State University. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you next week, Monday, for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Have a good weekend.